I like wine. I'm not afraid to admit it. Now, there are people out there who are immediately going to envision me. They're going to go straight to a, from a 1 to a 10 and envision me as a drunkard and uh, a wino, which is not what I'm saying. Uh, but I, I do enjoy wine very much. And I wanted to open tonight talking a little bit about it. Now, the picture I put in here, <laughs> exactly, that's what I'm talking about. Now, the picture I put in here is of a very specific type of grape. Bonus points for anybody who can actually name it. I'm putting in another picture here. This is a very fine grape. It is. Uh, it has a very thin skin, and it's it's um it it's it's a dark purple grape, sometimes black. No, you're all wrong about that. Now, I, you know, to be fair, I could be putting the wrong picture up. It could be uh, wrong classification, but. This grape that I'm putting in here is the oldest strain of grapes in the world. Some of you might know where I'm going to quickly be going with this. They, it is uh, it is black. That's one of the that's one of the um, the hints, and it is also shaped like a upside down pine cone. If you guess, uh, if anyone guesses Pinot Noir, then you would be correct. That's actually the where we get like a, you think a film noir, that it means black. Okay, that's, <laughs> Heidi, that's what you said. Well, you, that, there you go. There you got it. So I'm going to be dropping this article in here. And if you can read it, great. It's a PDF file. It's, it's kind of, um, it's kind of a small print. I'm sorry, it's not a PDF. It's a JPEG. It's small print. Um, but I'm going to be reading through it. You can just listen. It, it's not that important to read along with me. I, years ago, I used to be a wine server for a stint of time, and I love wine. I love showing people wine and having them taste wine and trying different um, samples and so on and so forth. This is called That Pinot Noir You Love. It's Roman, sort of. DNA analyses illuminate the history of popular wines. The next time you decante Pinot Noir or any Pinot Noir, you might take a moment to thank first century Romans. DNA taken from grapes found at archaeological sites reveal that 2,000 years ago, the Romans grew and drank wines which are closely related to the same Pinot and Syrahs, which are widely loved today. Other tests show that Sauvignon Blanc from a place called Jura, a region on the French Swiss border, is genetically identical to a 900-year-old grape seed found in Orleans, France. So I just wanted to point out here, and the article kind of goes on a little bit, but one thing that I wanted to point out is that, you know, archaeologists, quote unquote, are pointing out in various articles that I've been reading that Pinot was the most popular grape or wine of what we know as the first century. It was all over the Roman Empire. But the elephant in the room here is that this same strain of grape exists today. They're doing analysis of what they're finding from 2,000 years ago, and it's almost identical. Now, the interesting thing about wine is that it's the most complex food you will ever eat. Some of you can challenge me on this, but you will never drink the same glass of wine twice in your life. It is uh, textually and chemically and so on and so forth, always changing. 
And so it's it's fascinating that we have Pinot and Syrah, which is identical to, again, 2,000 years ago. And I'm going to just suggest, I'm just going to throw it out there, as we investigate uh, this pre-Mudflood society that I am claiming very possibly is the Millennial Kingdom of Messiah, that that was the, uh, the drink of choice, Pinot Noir. None of the other wines that we have today match anything that old, but that one and Syrah does. So the next time you go to the uh, wine cellar and you choose a wine that perhaps Yahusha himself drank or the saints or, you know, the people of this kingdom, you know what to go for. All right. Now, if you recall, I was on Zen Garcia's radio show last week, and I had the pleasure of speaking on the Millennial Kingdom plus Mud Flood. Now, some people have pointed out it turned into somewhat of a debate. Neither Zen nor I wanted that to be the case, but it, it, it sort of did. I'm going to drop in another picture here. I had the pleasure this weekend of going back to Zen's house. Now, actually, I went to Atlanta to baptize Andrew, who's in this room, the Atlanta area. But there I am at Zen's house, and he and I were just kind of hanging out on his couch all day and just for you know so many hours and just shooting the breeze and just talking about various subjects, and it felt really great. Zen and I have become uh, very close, close friends. I mean, we call we consider each other friends, and it's it's great that we can. Uh, we we started out a few years ago, uh, not getting along too well. Uh, he actually was the one that commissioned me to write my first book as a flat earthist, and after that, we had a bit of a falling out. Uh, interestingly enough, over the feminine ruach hakadesh, because at that time I wanted nothing to do with it. We had a bit of a falling out, but since then we have come together on many issues. And of course, now I uh, I do believe that the Ruach Hakadosh is feminine. And it, it I bring this up because I was at his house, and he once again commissioned me to write a book for him on the Millennial Kingdom. He really desperately wants me to write a book in the Millennial Kingdom. When I was on his radio show last week, he asked me in front of everyone. He he didn't even ask. He just said. He just said he announced Noel's writing a book. I'm like, thank you, Zen. <laughs> I, I didn't realize I was writing a book, but I guess I am now. So, uh, <laughs> and actually, I think the first person who brought it up that I should write a book, he's in the room tonight, um, but is uh, Michael. And I was in, I was sitting around a table with him drinking wine. I can't remember if it was Pinot or not. And uh, it was it was probably a red Zen, but, and he said, this was like last August, and he said I should write a book on the Millennial Kingdom. And I'm like, I don't know about that. But this is a really difficult book. To, this is a really difficult book to write because this is uncharted territory. This is a frontier that nobody has really crossed before. I think you guys know what I'm talking about. I mean, you have your all millennialist and your, your, um, you know, po uh, partial preterist and your preterist and all these different people claiming different things. Nobody has really claimed that the Millennial Kingdom physically happened for you know about a thousand year span before, and this is really tough because you guys are watching me in real time, uh, basically write this thing and try to figure all this out. Like there are things that I know for certain. I know that there was a mud flood about give or take two hundred years ago, I or a series of mud floods. I have no doubt in my mind about that. I know for a fact that there was a another huge reset that people don't really talk about too much even in mudflood but it's there is the, the 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 heat you know the fire that melted cities and reshaped the landscape i know these things i know that there are these buildings that existed before the mudflood these beautiful cathedrals 
that I can't explain it all. Um, and I have so many questions that I don't have answers to. But anyway, so th you know, thank you guys for all your patience. Now tonight, I was I bring this up because I was going to give a presentation tonight on showing you guys pictures. You guys, many in this room have seen these pictures of the melted buildings and the the mountains that are melted. And I had asked for people to send me in these photos. Many people responded and sent me a lot of photos. I have a folder of many, many photos. And I want you all to know that just because I'm ditching that tonight does not mean that you guys sent those to me in vain. I actually ditched that at the last minute today because um, I want to do this right. And as I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to write this book, I told Zen over the weekend that it's not going to be one book. It's going to be a series of books. I'm probably going to release like the first two at once because there's so much information. And he gives me these um, assignments that he doesn't want me to go over 300 pages. His, he told me he doesn't want to publish any books for me that are, um, it ha they have to be two to 300 pages, give or take, which is, he knows is really difficult for me because I can easily write a 700 page book. Yeah, so there's that. But anyways, I'm going to be doing a presentation proper, hopefully in the next few weeks where I'm going to be presenting these photos for those of you that sat through my presentation on the 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 lightning scarring, uh, you're going to have to pretend like you hadn't heard that before because I might be repeating that. So tonight, I do want to point out that we have Marco Polo groups that we have started as part of this ministry. And for those of you who do want to connect with others, uh, a Marco Polo group is something that is is about five to ten person group. We have group leaders, and it's it's a way that you can grow and live life with other people in this group and have face-to-face -face contact through social media. It's private groups, so you can share things. They don't go public, and they're separated by men and women. So I recommend everybody, if you are interested in something like that, that uh, there will be a link under this video on YouTube where you can um, sign up for it, or uh, David just put this in here. Also, I put this picture here of my memes page. A little silly, I know, but we live in very dark times, and I love memes for a number of reasons, because you can spread a lot of truth with one picture, but also they're funny, and they're, you know, they give us something to laugh at in these times that are truly dark. And all these memes that I collect, I've gotten quite a collection of memes on the Unexpected Cosmology. And this is all coming through, mostly through this Discord page. When you guys come and you're dropping your memes in here, I collect them. I'm, I'm just like, I'm snatching them left and right and putting them in folders. And I've got hundreds and hundreds I haven't published just because I'm trying to organize them. But just encourage everyone, come over here, drop your research, drop your memes, and I do collect these. Tonight, we will be going over the Genesis Reset. So what I mean by the Genesis Reset is... You know, we talk about the mud flood reset. We talk about the the 70 AD resets or the, the Millennial Kingdom resets. But this is another reset that is in Scripture. Now, this is going to be a fighting words for some of you. I know some of you are obstinately will, will stand against this. And I did for years. I fought against what people will call the gap theory. I don't like to call it the gap theory because it's that's a weaponized term that people use just to defeat it. But we will be going over what I now believe to be um, a series of creations before this one. And the interesting thing about, about Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim, that I noticed, like just looking at evidence like Pompeii and uh, other places of destruction, that he, he likes to leave behind evidence of destruction, of judgment. Like he, he wants us to see this judgment. He wants us to know 
that you know he wants to see all these fossils and these uh, these layers of rock, these the geological columns, and he wants us to see um, sunken cities below the ocean, and he wants us to see caves with giants in them, and um, you know melted cities and and so on and so forth. He wants us to see this because he wants us to know that he does hold us accountable, that he does judge, and he is a righteous judge. But you know sinners and and rebels. Um, will not escape. So with that, let's open up and we will be going over the Genesis reset. You will notice immediately on the second page that I first published this on August 13th, 2021. This actually, the original version of this ended up in my book, The Angel She Desired. And what I've been making an attempt of doing is instead of going back and or instead of writing all new material, I'm trying to go back to my old papers. I'm dusting things off from like two, three years ago sometimes, and I'm trying to improve on them and radically expand upon them. And so this one got a uh, double length. I put a lot of new content in this. And since I haven't gone over it as a group, this will be a first time. So let's get right into it. This is, we'll start on page three, justice and mercy, the seventh age of man. Pause for a, a drink of coffee proving to you that there were indeed six former creations before our own is not something I'm prepared to do, nor am I suggesting it as doctrine. It's simply a matter of guesswork on my own part. Call it an investigative hunch, an inkling, really, a talking point to the scrutiny, and one in which I'm more than willing to be wrong about. Obviously, I wasn't there. You weren't either. Sometimes men have been inspired to write books based upon the information relayed to them from those who were there. I'm talking about the Most High of Yasharel and his entourage of divine beings, but also even those of the fallen nature. My current conclusion is that the ancients had this information at their disposal. At the very least, that there were ages beyond our own, void of mortal men. It is likely the result of a recent reset that Hasatan has sought to confuse and ultimately scrub any material which might have brought the former things to light. The reason being is simple. Post-Newtonian science is an excellent controlling mechanism, especially in its ability to hide the spiritual reality surrounding us. Christians will feverishly debate me on this point, claiming, in the very least, that they are mindful of heaven. And yet, as I write these words, people everywhere are wearing masks to escape the invisible enemy, not in the least aware that they're actually taking part in a spiritual ceremony. And that's just the start of it. If I told these same people that we live in a conscious womb, that divine beings are the driving force behind the natural world, as well as the weather service, or that the moon is also Ruach and cannot be landed upon, I'd probably be scoffed at. Mind you, not by the ancients. It is the post-Newtonians who have their minds stuck in a box. They even prefer it that way, all by design, of course. Ironically, evolutionists do believe the Earth to be much older, whereas young Earth creationists insist nothing can be found before the creation week. They're both affected by the same worldview, though, and that is enlightenment thinking. Darwinians are even given a counterfeit narrative aimed at numbing any trace of the spiritual and then supplanting it with material science. Whereas the creationists will insist 
there are no curtains needing pulled in the very first chapter of Genesis because of material science. What I have come to find is even young earth creationism is controlled opposition. That is perhaps a reality which many of my readers still need to come to terms with. I'm not pointing any fingers, just so you guys know. And then we have books such as this one. Nor is this world inhabited by man, the first of things earthly created by Elohim. He made several worlds before ours, but he destroyed them all because he was pleased with none until he created ours. But even this last would have had no permanence if Elohim had executed his original plan of ruling it according to the principle of strict justice. It was only when he saw that justice by itself would undermine the world that he associated mercy with justice and made them to rule jointly. Thus, from the beginning of all things prevailed divine goodness, without which nothing could have continued to exist. And this comes from Legend of the Yahudim. The author tells us there were several worlds before our own, which is the same thing as saying more than two, but not many. I still take it to mean more than a few. And so rather than becoming fixated upon the number seven, we can at least move forward with the premise that we are not the first creation. Before doing so, however, the text we have just read brings up an excellent point. Without mercy, heaven's judicial system would have wiped out the inhabitants of this world long ago, which are apparently how civilizations of a former age were brought to ruin. Yahuwah ruled them through justice without mercy, according to this text. I get the feeling that the introduction of mercy this time around was the result of ours being a father-son project. After all, his name is Yahusha, right? Salvation. I also suspect Yahuwah's command that the tree of life be guarded was in fact one such act of mercy, as eating of it afterwards may have fated Adam and Heva to be damned alongside with the rebellious angels, far beyond the grasp of salvation, which may have been Hasatan's original plan. But that's just a side note. We see the Most High's promises to be merciful throughout the pages of Scripture. Here, I'll pick one at random. And this one comes from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 31. For Yahuwah Elohika is a merciful El. He will not forsake you, neither destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers, which he swore unto them. You see, he was merciful to the wilderness generation promising not to destroy them as he had others. There were undoubtedly moments when he wanted to, but he kept to his word. Let's not overlook another promise, though. Yahuwah would not forget the covenant which he had sworn unto their fathers, our fathers. His mercy is a promise which lines up with those who are obedient participants in his covenant. They're inseparable. The same light of thought is expounded upon in the following passage. This comes from Deuteronomy again, chapter 30. And it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you shall call them to mind among all the nations, whether Yahuwah Elohika has driven you, and shall return unto Yahuwah Elohika. And just so you guys know, Elohika means of host, Yahuwah of host and shall obey his voice according to all that I command you this day, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul. 
that then Yahuwah Eloheka will turn your captivity and have compassion upon you, and will return and gather you from all the nations whether Yahuwah Eloheka has scattered you. We can sit here all day and argue whether mercy was granted to the inhabitants of a former age. What is certain, however, is that mercy and compassion and grace are granted to us. Yahuwah insists as much. But pay attention to the fine print. Only those who obey his voice will receive compassion, specifically all that he commanded the children of Yasharil on that day. The print gets even finer, though. Before you tell me that that generation has come and gone, and therefore no longer applicable to our own, the instructions are given for future generations who have already chosen the blessing or the curse, mainly the curse, and have therefore found themselves driven out among the pagan nations. It is for those people returning into Yahuwah Elohika and obeying his voice as commanded on that day who will receive compassion. Of course, that's us. Obedience and mercy in the light of the law. How we live our lives matters in whatever age we live in. Perhaps this is what drives Hasatan so. The law he gets, particularly his rebellion against it. No need to convince him of justice either. He is, after all, our accuser. But of obedience and mercy, he understands neither. A perfect work. Entire organizations of men are devoted to say that nothing noteworthy happened anywhere between the lines of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Particularly young earth creationist ministries, or as earlier mentioned, they will tell you that there is absolutely no curtain needing pulled and that you are to mind your own business like a good boy. There are busts lining the halls of academia representing minds far more brilliant than you. Let them handle it. Uncovering the hidden treasures contained within the word is apparently the work of the naughty. I'm feeling naughty, are you? Let's have a go at the curtain pulling then, shall we? Jumping into our Bibles, we come upon the creation story as told by Kepha. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of Elohim the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved into fire against the day of judgment and perdition of wicked men. Second Kepha chapter 3 verses 5 through 7. Did you catch that? Well, I finally latched on. It took me 40 years and another dozen or so weeks to do so, though. Why has, why has it taken me so long to see the gap in Kepha may in fact be the result of a midlife crisis and cause for another discussion entirely? Hopefully I can speed up the process for you. I even pulled out the trusty highlighter so that you can see what I'm talking about. Kepha has just described the first world age. Perished. He's not referring to Noah's flood. At least I think. I could be wrong about that. You will be quick to tell me that there was only one world-destroying flood in the Bible and that he most certainly is referring to Noah. That's what I once thought as well. And yet, the world that then was, which perished, mind you, is the same earth standing out of the water and in the water. 
he's referring to the creation account as described in Genesis chapter 1, wherein we read that the earth was without form and void. On the first day of the creation week, Yahuwah flipped the light switch on, and look, there was water everywhere. No stardust, no cosmic matter, just water, lots and lots of water. Sure, the earth was there somewhere, formless and void though, also submerged, and the Ruach HaKodesh was moving over the face of it. Beersheath is a Hebrew word which simply translates in the beginning. In English, we would say Genesis, but that's what it literally means, in the beginning. The entire first instance is sometimes referred to as the seven perfect words. English adds a few more, but this is how it reads. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. I imagine you're already familiar with the verbiage. Very few, however, care to ponder the possibility that the perfect blessing of creation quickly succumbs to disaster. You probably already know where I'm going with this, right? The dreaded gap theory. I've been often reminded how scholars have already settled the debate and that there is nothing more to say on the matter. But again, that's not what the ancients tell me. Consider the same passage, Genesis 1, as told to us in the Aramaic Targum. In the beginning, now I'm going to read here from the Hebrew Masoretic first. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. You know that much. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Ruach HaKodesh moved upon the face of the waters. And then as we read in the Aramaic Targum, at the beginning, Yahuwah created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was vacancy and desolation, solitary of the sons of men, and void of every animal. And darkness was upon the face of the abyss, and the Ruach of mercies from before Yahuwah breathed upon the face of the waters. Genesis 1 verses 1 through 2. Rather than simply telling us the earth was formless, the Targum informs, of it, informs us of its current state, which is to say, its complete emptiness or desolation, and even more so, what it is now vacant of, the sons of men and every living animal. To enhance this mystery, the abyss shown to us in the book of Revelation makes its first appearance in the second sentence of Targum Genesis. Its inclusion here gives the vacant and desolate earth a pair of eyes which stares uneasily at the reader, as if to say, something happened. Oh, something happened, all right. After all, Yahuwah did not create the earth a waste place. Tell me why it is in shambles then. So this is from Yashiyahu, or Isaiah chapter 45. For thus says Yahuwah, who created the heavens, Elohim himself that formed the earth and made it, he has established it. He created it, not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahuwah, and there is none else. You didn't believe me when I told you Yahuwah did not create the earth a waste place, did you? But there it is. Yeshayahu said it first, and I simply borrowed from him. Well, technically, Moshe is the first on record. The word that is used here is the very same which we have already seen in Genesis, tohu, without form. That would be Strong's Concordance 8418, for all the fact checkers out there. Or you can see right there the Hebrew, if, if you can read Hebrew. You pronounce it like this, tohu. Try it, tohu. Again, tohu. Practice makes perfect. I'm still practicing. I'm terrible at Hebrew, guys. Its definition reads, tohu, formlessness, confusion, 
unreality, emptiness. And that comes from Strong's Concordance 8418. But that's just how the world started, you tell me. Tohu. Setting the bar kind of low, are we? Why create the world in darkness anyways? Seems to me like you'd flip on the light switch first and then get to work. It's not like the heavens weren't created right alongside of the earth. Were the heavens created in darkness too? Come to think of it, when was the last time that Yahuwah created anything in the darkness? The creation week model tells us that he only created during daylight hours, even before the sun and the moon came to be. If the earth already existed before the introduction of light, then I can't help but suspect the lights had been flipped off at an earlier moment. Why we are why we are not directly told. But then notice Ezra's depiction of creation. Ezra described Genesis 1-1 quite differently. This comes from 2 Ezra 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 38. And I said, O Yahuwah, you spoke from the beginning of the creation, even the first day, and said thus, Let heaven and earth be made, and your word was a perfect work. All the works of Yahuwah and his son Yahusha are perfect, always have been, even when he was a boy. I'm talking about Yahusha incarnate. Every word proceeding from his mouth was perfect. Um, after raising another child to life, a crowd of onlookers responds accordingly. This comes from the infancy gospel of Thomas. And the multitude that stood by saw it and marveled and said, Of a truth, this young child is either Elohim or an angel of Elohim. For every word of his is a perfect work. And Yahushua departed thence and was playing with other children. See, Genesis 1-1 tells us that Elohim created heaven and earth, and yet, one more sentence into the story, the earth has already become an unreality. If we're merging both verses into one singular event, then that's not exactly a perfect work now, is it? All right, if you need caught up, we are on page 12. Bearing not the angels. The inaugural sentence of Genesis is a reset. I'm convinced of that much. I told you, however, that building a case wouldn't be easy. Certainly not in the books handed down to us. Far too many libraries have burnt down in the intervening years. To better understand these two separate events, destruction and recreation, Kifa may in fact give us a chronological order to lay our breadcrumbs down upon. That's what I'm told at any rate. I was told, Noel, you should look into what Peter has to say on it. This is what I found. Follow along. So this comes from Second uh, Kepha, chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. For Elohim spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down into Sheol, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be watched into the judgment of anguish, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the wicked, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live in wickedness. Kepha gives us three judgments to consider. Firstly, the angels who sinned were cast into Sheol. Take a mental note of that. Then Noah was spared from the floodwaters. And lastly, Sodom and Gomorrah followed as an example for the present-day wicked. I can thusly conclude that the judgment of the angels happened before the flood of Noah. Not seeing much here regarding the Genesis 1 event, but 
let's not give up quite yet. If your thought first turned to the watchers from Enoch as an explanation to this passage, then just know it was my frame of reference as well. Hard to tell, though. If I recall, the watchers were buried in the hills and the valleys of the earth for 70 generations. Not exactly a description of Sheol, but what do I know? The best thing to do in situations like this is to turn to Enoch's first-hand account and find out. The following context is Yahuwah pronouncing judgment upon two specific watchers, Azazel and um, Samjaza, or Shimi-Aza. Technically, he's pronouncing judgment upon all 200 watchers, but we'll get to that. First, we read of Azazel. Again, Yahuwah said to Raphael, bind Azazel hand and foot, cast him into darkness, and opening the desert, which is in Dudael, cast him in there. Throw upon him hurled and pointed stones, covering him with darkness. There shall he remain forever. Cover his face that he may not see the light. And in the day, and in the great day of judgment, let him be cast into the fire. Enoch chapter 10, verses 6 through 9. Not looking too good for Azazel. Probably shouldn't have shacked up with human women and then fathered children with them. Enoch places his location of imprisonment at an opening in a place called Dudael, which is described as a desert. I haven't the faintest clue where Dudael is, and the internet isn't talking. Dudael does have a wiki page, but its location is still inconclusive. If they know where Dudael is, then our slave masters are not spilling the beans. The thought, however, is that the entrance to Dudael is located somewhere just to the east of Yerushalayim, and that Dudael is a region within Sheol. It's not my thought, mind you. It's just what others are claiming, and I don't know why. The jury is still out on that one. Even though Azazel was punished sometime after Genesis 1-1, the order of it events shouldn't go unnoticed. He was cast into the darkness, or you might say, covered with darkness. The deduction here seems straightforward enough. The darkness was a result of his rebellion from the light. The lights went out on Azazel of Dudael. And unlike the other watchers, Azazel was never granted release from his prison abode. Therefore, the location of Dudael is uniquely solitary and separate from the others. Though the lights went out for the other watchers, they were also promised to come back. Uh, the lights were promised to come back on. Follow along. To Mikael, or Michael, likewise, Yahuwah said, go and announce his crime to uh, Shia Aza, or Samjaza, and to the others who are with him, who have been associated with women, that they might be polluted with all their impurity. And when all their sons shall be slain, when they shall see the perdition of their beloved, bind them for 70 generations underneath the earth, even to the day of judgment and of consummation until the judgment, the effect of which will last forever, be completed. Then shall they be taken away into the lower depths of the fire in torments, and in confinement shall they be shut up forever. Enoch chapter 10, verses 15 through 16. Shai'aza and his fellow 198 conspirators are pronounced two locations of judgment. The first is simply underneath the earth, whereas the second is the lowest depth of the fire. This is presumably only after the impending release on good behavior and recapture. It's like I've always said. It's so hard to reform anyone in prison these days. Elsewhere, Kepha tells us that Yahusha Messiah preached until the ru into the Ruwaks in prison. 
Remember, our Kepha timeline informs us that the angels were judged before the judgment of flood, flood water. We read, For Mashiach also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to Elohim, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Ruach, by which also he went and preached unto the Ruachoth in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of Elohim waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The Ruachoth, whom Yahusha visited, simply means spirits, and does not necessarily denote angels, which should be written um, agilos or in Greek. The timeline fits, though, don't it? Reading through all the way to the end gives us the answer we were seeking. Elohim was long-suffering while these angels were disobedient, which just so happened to be in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Conclusively, it is very much a possibility that 1 Peter 3 and 2 Peter 2 are referring to the same event, and that it is furthermore the same event as Enoch chapter 10. Oh, hell. <laughs> Perhaps I am still having a midlife crisis. You tell me. Edit. They are the same event. Jubilees confirms it to be so. So we read in Jubilees chapter 5 the following, But Noah found grace before the eyes of Yahuwah, and against the angels whom he had sent upon the earth, he was exceedingly wroth. And he gave commandment to root them out of all their dominion, and he bade us to bind them in the depths of the earth. And behold, they are bound in the midst of them and are kept separate. Oh dear. Looks like we have yet to read a reference to a pre-creation week angelic rebellion. This investigation isn't going so well. The, the battle may be lost, but the war is far from over. Let's see what else we can dig up. If you're following along, we are on page 17. Floodwater of the Deep Destroying the earth by way of floodwater was a favorite pastime of Elohim. Until it wasn't. I'm willing to demonstrate that fact. You will recall that the heavens and the earth, which are now, are reserved until fire. But it wasn't always so. It is only after the deluge by which Noah and his family survived that Yahuwah promised never to destroy the world again with water. So, you guys are all familiar with this passage. It comes from Genesis chapter 9. And Elohim said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over, uh, over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. It says the water shall no more become the sort of method by which all flesh should become destroyed. As an added assurance, Yahuwah offers a sign of the covenant, and that is the rainbow. The initial pull away here is that rainbows did not exist before this particular promise. Yahuwah didn't point at something old and give it new meaning. No, he created something new to assure that the old wouldn't be repeated. Meanwhile, the evidence is inconclusive. As I could tell you, Yahuwah has already destroyed the world with flood water, perhaps on any number of occasions. But unless scripture tells us so, then it is only speculation on my part. I'll own up to that fact. Still not giving up quite yet, though. There is what just may prove to be yet another passage which speaks of the destruction concerning the first world age. 
That is, the earth between Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The account derives from first Enoch. It's told to Methuselah by Enoch and described as having taken place years earlier, before he was even married to his mother, and proceeds as follows. I was lying down in the house of my grandfather, uh, Malalo. I saw in a vision heaven thrown down and removed. And when it fell upon the earth, I saw likewise the earth absorbed by a great, great abyss and mountains suspended over mountains. Hills were sinking upon hills. Lofty trees were gliding off from their trunks and were in the act of being projected and of sinking into the abyss. Enoch chapter 83 verses 4 through 6. Um, wow. The entire earth was absorbed by a great abyss. That's deep stuff. Where else have we seen the abyss today? It's okay if you don't want to answer, even if you know. I'll commit to both sides of the discussion for the remainder of this paper. The Targum, that's where. Need a refresher? And the earth was vacancy and desolation, solitary of the sons of men, and void of every animal. And darkness was upon the face of the abyss. And the Ruach of mercies from before Yahuwah breathed upon the face of the waters. Genesis 1, verses 1 through 2. Darkness was ominously present upon the face of the abyss during the first day of creation. And why is that exactly? You will tell me Enoch speaks nothing of the earth being destroyed by water in his vision, making the two incompatibles. And yet, nowhere else do we see all of creation being overthrown, toppled, and sucked up into the abyss. It's certainly not describing Noah's flood, not depicting the world's destruction by fire either. There has never been any other event that I can find where the entire world is sucked into the abyss. Enoch quickly takes his vision to uh, Mahalalel. His grandfather thusly interprets the sinking of all creation into the abyss as a future event, if I'm not mistaken. Enoch, however, is only giving us his interpretation which seems oddly out of place, and in fact reminds me of Kepha's misguided reaction to the animals on the sheet in Acts chapter 10. Kepha's vision, by the way, was about unclean, unclean people, not making unclean animals edible. Even Mahalalos seems to believe his interpretation is only a possible outcome when stating, Now, my son, rise up and beseech Yahuwah of glory, for you are faithful, that a remnant may be left upon earth, and that he would not wholly destroy it. Enoch 83 verse 10. Again, we know this is not a future outcome for the earth, as Kepha has already told us the present cosmos are reserved for fire. So far as I can tell, the abyss always coincides with spiritual entities. You probably already know about the locusts coming out of the abyss in Revelation 9. Well, we are told how they ended up there in Jubilees. It was when Yahuwah commanded many Ruachoth to be bound and thrown into the place of condemnation. So this comes from Jubilees chapter 10. And in the third week of this Jubilee, the unclean devils began to lead astray the children of the sons of Noah. So you can see where this is contextually, the sons of Noah, after the flood. And to make to err and destroy them. And the sons of Noah came to Noah their father, and they told him concerning the devils which were leading astray and blinding and slaying his son's sons. And Yahuwah Elohainu bade us to bind all. And the chief of the Ruachoth, Mastima, 
came and said, Yahuwah, Creator, let some of them remain before me, and let them hearken to my voice, and do all that I shall say unto them. For if some of them are not left to me, I shall not be able to execute the power of my will on the sons of men. For these are for corruption and leading astray before my judgment. For great is the wickedness of the sons of men. And he said, and he said, this is Yahuwah speaking, let the tenth part of them remain before him and let nine parts descend into the place of condemnation. And one of us, he commanded that we should uh, know, um, that that's a misprint there. I guess all, no, no other medicines, for he knew that they would not walk in uprightness nor strive in righteousness. And we did according to all his words, all the uh, malignant evil ones we bound in the place of condemnation, and a tenth part of them we left that they might be subject before Satan on the earth. Jubilees chapter ten. I always point out that my biggest spilling errors always happen typically with scripture. Because I'm not copying and pasting the stuff, I'm actually typing this out by hand. That's how I, I, I pick up the most details and learn things better. So uh, I don't always go back and edit over the scripture again, which I should. The place of condemnation is the same as the abyss, which is also the same as the deep. It is a spiritual realm. It is a place for angels and demons, as well as the spirits of dead souls, I suppose. This is how Yahuwah describes it to, to Job. Uh, Job chapter 38, have you entered into the springs of the sea or have you walked in the search of the depth? Have the gates of death been opened unto you or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Here we see the, the deep position within the coordinates of the ocean, but is then compared with the gates and the doors of death. Seems like we're having the same place described. Keep that in mind while reading from Psalm 77, 16, when the waters of the deep see Elohim and trembles. It says, the waters saw you, O Elohim. The waters saw you. They were afraid. The depths also were troubled. And why wouldn't the deep tremble with fear? The dead should tremble, as well as its prisoners. It just brings us back to Genesis 1 again. Darkness was over the face of the abyss. So if you need caught up, we are on page 22. The earth becomes formless. I found another passage which fits the vision of Enoch 83, 4 through 6 nicely. A couple of them, actually. Both passages depict the creation as seen in Genesis, but derive from slightly different angles. You'll see what I mean immediately hereafter. So this comes from the Book of the Two Pearls, which is a fascinating reading if you guys haven't read this yet. In the beginning, Elohim made the heavens and the earth. The earth became formless and deserted, and darkness was upon the shaft of the pit, and the spirit of Yahuwah hovered over the surface of the seas. And Elohim said, Let there be light. And there was the word, the light of men. Men were in darkness, and the light overpowered the darkness but men saw it not. Shem Bar Noah was on his deathbed when he gave this account, according to the Book of the Two Pearls. His descendants stood around while he reminded them that Elohim made the heavens and the earth and that the earth became formless. Assuming this text originates in Hebrew, we would expect to see the word tohu in there. But then look what he includes in the retelling. 
Men were in darkness and the light overpowered the darkness. That's epic. I don't know how you read that, but I envision pre-Adamites on the earth. Pre-Adamites deceived by the angels. That's why Adam and Hava were created, you know, to replace the high priest over humanity who had failed the people upon the earth. Talking about the light of men also means that Yahusha has revealed himself to the world on far, on far more than just one occasion. It shouldn't surprise us by now to find that his appearing lines up with a reset. Our next passage derives from recognitions of Clement. It is Kepha who is committed to the creation narrative this time around, and as you shall hopefully see, the two complement each other. So this comes from the Recognitions of Clement, chapter 1, verses 27. I'm kind of excited because this is the first time I've ever quoted from this book uh, publicly. In the beginning, when Elohim had made the heaven and the earth as one house, the shadow which was cast by the mundane bodies involved in darkness, those things which were enclosed in it. But when the will of Elohim had introduced lights, that darkness which had been caused by the shadows of bodies was straightway dispelled. Talk about epic. Then at length, light is appointed for the day, darkness for the night. And now the water which was within the world in the middle space of the first heaven and earth congealed as if with frost and solid as crystal uh, is distended. And the middle spaces of the heaven and earth are separated as by a firmament of the sort. And that firmament the creator called heaven, so called by the name of, the, of that previously made. And so he divided into two portions that fabric of the universe, although it was but one house. Pause. And now you know why Elohim spent an entire day creating the firmament. It was to separate heaven and earth into two houses. Before that moment, they were a consolidated entity, one house. Something had to be done about the darkness, though. There were too many shadows being cast by the mundane bodies. Once again, it would take the introduction of light to dispel the darkness. As you can clearly see, the separation of nighttime and daylight hours coincided with the departure of heaven from earth. In case cognitive dissonance is getting the better of you, remind yourself again why you pray that the will of Elohim be done on earth as it is in heaven specifically that his kingdom come. So long as there is evil here below, heaven will not break through the firmament and congeal with the earth. Our prayer is that sin might be done away with once and for all. Continuing, still in the recognitions of Clement, the reason of the division was this, that the upper portion might afford a dwelling place to angels and the lower to men. After this, the place of the sea and the chaos which had been made received that portion of the water which remained below by order of the eternal well. And these flowing down to the, to the sunken hollow places, the dry land appeared, and the gatherings of the waters were made seas. Again, recognitions of Clement, chapter 1, verse 27. Or I think it's, uh, it might be book 1, uh, uh, chapter 27. I take that back. Worth noting is the upper portion, which was assigned to angels, whereas the lower was given to men. The purpose of this paper is not to argue in favor of pre-Adamites. Do recall, though, how Adam was taken from the mountain of worship and placed into the Garden of Eden. We've gone over that several months ago. And where was Eden again? 
but paradise, the third heaven. Man and woman was created upon the earth, but Hava was whipped up as something extra special in heaven. She was actually created in paradise. Seeing as how Adam and Hava were not set up to take a tumble, that tells us that men had already been purposed to be ruled over in the earth below. Also, we read about the chaos which had been made because of a struggle. As the water flowed down and sunk to the hollow places, dry land appeared. You and I both know what is being compared to here. Noah. On both occasions, the world was flooded. Speaking of resets, this one comes from uh, Yermiyahu, and it reads, I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form, tohu, and void, and the heavens, and they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of Yahuwah and by his fierce anger. Yermiyahu or Jeremiah, chapter 4, verses 23 through 26. We're back on Tohu again. There it is. I even scribbled it in so that you wouldn't miss it. Yermiyahu is purposely directing us back to Genesis 1, verse 2, where the earth was without form and void. Notice how the prophet sees the whole earth in the state of Tohu. Ezra has already told us that the earth was created perfect, but here it can only be deemed formally fruitful. He even says as much. The fruitful place was a wilderness. There are cities, but they're broken down. Vacants of men, though, they're gone. There were birds at one time, too, but they fled. The chaotic condition and wreckage of the earth, specifically Yahuwah's anger, is a direct result of its previous tenets. You had to be there, I guess. You will tell me this is a future event and not to be taken literally as something that has already happened. If so, we're still dealing with a reset, as the language is the same. And anyways, in Hebrew there are no coincidences. Difficult to claim that tohu is fruitlessness and the direct result of a destructive event in one instance of his story, but not in another. Did you notice how the heavens had no light? Strange. The switch had been flipped off, obviously. Still hugging this to your bosom and claiming a future event? I'm not holding a gun to your head. I can't force you to see the peripheral picture, but know this. When the firmament is rolled back and heaven comes down to earth, Yahuwah isn't flipping the lights off um, of heaven off. Let me say that again. Yahuwah is not flipping the lights of heaven off. All right, we are on page 26. I think this is the last section. Destroyer of worlds. Up to this point, I have yet to make any mention of the Prince of Tyre. I do admit, for the first go-round, failing to add his puzzle piece into the picture was borderline neglect on my part. Wasn't oversight, though. It was more like a lack of quarters for the parking meter, as I was running out of time to turn in a paper. Perfectionism is something I gave up in my 20s. But now that we have happened upon a second edition, I hope to remedy some of those simple oversights. You see, the Prince of Tyre, as found in Ezekiel chapter 28, may be our best glimpse into the lost world of Genesis 1-1, certainly within the 66 canon anyways. Before we do, let's take a detour and a quick pit stop at a familiar passage in the book of Job. 
chapter 38. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if you have understanding. Who has laid the measures thereof, if you know? Or who has stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of Elohim shouted for joy. When making the claim that this passage would be familiar, I guess I was speaking to an audience which already appreciates the connection between divine beings and stars. For that reader, Job 38 is an oldie but goodie. And for the rest of you, no, it's not another syrupy metaphor. The singing stars are given an exclusive relationship with the sons of Elohim. And notice something, they're shouting for joy. Every single one of them. Nobody's sitting in the corner and pouting. Where we are even told the timing of their exclamation. It is when the foundations of the earth were laid and a line was stretched out upon it. I hate to break the news to you uh, globies and ball lovers out there, but no architect, contractor, or construction foreman in his right mind would stretch a line upon anything other than a flat surface before building upon it. Also, the foundation is laid first before the rooftop and never the other way around. Just saying. Having read Enoch 83 verses 4 through 6 and Yirmiyahu chapter 4 verses 23 through 26, wherein the destruction of the old world is pronounced in relationship with the abyss, we should be able to pinpoint the whereabouts of this passage in Job 38. Yahuwah says nothing about water covering the earth, and it only makes sense that he wouldn't. I'm not saying it's impossible, but quite difficult all the same and unreasonable to stretch a line out on something which is completely submerged. The heavens and the earth were created before the Ruach HaKodesh hovered over the face of the waters. Therefore, we've been given another cursory glance into Genesis 1.1, which again is precisely what 2 Ezra 6.38 is describing, before Tohu. You see how it's coming together? All that reading is paying off. Turning now to Ezekiel. This is chapter 28, verses 11 through 19. Moreover, moreover, the word of Yahuwah came unto me, saying, Son of Adam, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyre, or I guess that's pronounced uh, Sor, and say unto him, Thus says Adonai Yahuwah, You seal up the psalm full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You have been in Eden, the garden of Elohim. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold, the workmanship of your uh, tabrets and of your pipes was prepared in you in the day that you were created. You are the anointed cherub, or that's cherub, that covers, and I have set you so. You were upon the holy mountain of Elohim. You have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. I would love to see that. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the multitude of your merchandise, they have filled the midst of you with violence, and you have sinned. Therefore, I will cast you as profane out of the mountain of Elohim, and I will destroy you, O covering Kerov, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You have corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold you. 
you have defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your traffic. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of you. It shall devour you, and I will bring you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold you. And they that know you among the people shall be astonished at you. You shall be a terror, and never shall you be any more. Ezekiel 28, 11-19 Another difficult argument to make is that the prince of Tyre is a human, when in fact Ezekiel identifies him as a cherub. Take a mental note of that. Others have suggested that it was indeed an angelic being ruling from a city on earth, but that he was perhaps a contemporary of the prophets. Not that I have a problem with that in and of itself, except that the same divine being is accredited with having ruled from Eden. When did that happen in the Bible? It didn't, likely telling us that Ezekiel was making connections with other books which our Roman controllers didn't think to include. Furthermore, the same divine being is promised to be destroyed in the presence of his worshippers, future tense, and to their astonishment. Sounds like a satanial Satan prototype to me or in the very least, a divine being on par with the angel of death. I'm actually not convinced that the Prince of Tyre is Satanael, but what do I know? If you attempt to tell me Hasatan did sit on one throne or another, but only after Adam and Hava were created, then who was the cherub prince trading with exactly? That's what brought his downfall, you know. The iniquity of traffic. Other translations say dishonest trade. The Hebrew words are, um, let's see if I can even pronounce that, uh, Riku, I'm not going to try to pronounce that, you guys can see it on the page, and they mean just that, iniquity and trade or merchandise, uh, Rikula. Try not to gloss over the little details. It's one thing to play chess with oneself, and quite another to have the left and right hand engaged in trade, especially when dishonest gain is involved. That tells us there were other divine beings or people groups whom he made deals with while being enthroned in Eden. And where does the Adam and Hava story back that up? It doesn't. Some pages ago, I quoted from the Book of the Two Pearls, wherein Shem Bar Noah gave an account of the creation. Well, I left out the part which preceded it. Some people like to eat the cherry on top right away, but I've often been the eccentric type and prefer saving it. In case you haven't noticed, we're nearing the end. Shem's account takes us on a soaring plunge right over the high dive into the gap. If it's to be believed with any weight or measure of authenticity, then we are once again reminded that the Prince of Tyre and Satanael are two separate entities. Reading. In the beginning was a seraph of the order of the heavenly host of Yahuwah. His name was Nekesh. He was given authority over the earth generations before men. This is the book of Nakash and how he became null and void. Nakash led the third part of the seraphs of fire in peace and paradise. Trees were gold and leaves were of the color of jasper and other fine jewels. From earth, he saw how Yahuwah loved the only begotten ones more than him. Nakash influenced his army to do the evil thing and tempt Yahuwah. Elohim sent Michael, Gabriel, Uriel, Raphael, and even Phanuel to fight Nakash. The messengers uh, Seraphael and Raguel 
for since also. Yes, Yahuwah sent his seven messengers to defeat Nakash, the heretic. Nakash caused the earth to become desolate. His nature was created to be in opposition of divine reasons, or for divine reasons. The Book of the True Pearls, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Nakash the heretic was seraph, and therefore serpentine in nature, which is to say a completely different class of angels from the cherub. Can't be the prince of Tyre, then. I'll let you make sense of that. And I'm still not convinced that Nakash and Satanao are one and the same. No need for a, a muscle cramp while performing mental gymnastics, though. To me, the Prince of Tyre, Nakash the Heretic, assigns more than one corruptor to the lost world. Kind of like Azaza or Asamjaza with the Watchers. We call them conspirators for a reason. Why do I get the feeling that Tyre by the sea was simply renamed by the Phoenicians in memory of Atlantis, and that we are gazing in upon the former age of the angels? All right, guys, that was it for that. Um, that took a lot out of my voice because I don't have much voice tonight. So uh, tell me your thoughts. Loved it, hated it, blasphemous. <laughs> Just let me know. Really like the ending. <laughs> Another food for thought. The way you pictured it. So the Prince of Tyre just isn't a representation of Satan? Is that what you're saying? Well, that's that's the thing, right? The Prince of Tyre is a cherub, and either Hasatan is a cherub or a seraph. If he's a seraph, then he's not the Prince of Tyre. Um, and that's something we've kind of discussed in this group before. I'm I'm open to Hasatan being cherub or seraph. The, the 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 passage I quoted from at the end, the person the entity identified as a Nakash was a seraph, completely different. You know, a seraph is like a, a serpentine. It's the reptilians. Um, they're the, the dragon, the dragon lords or whatever you want to call them. The, I think the phoenix is also a seraphim. Uh, but the, the cherubs are a completely different class. And, you know, we, I think that's one of the things that we like, one of the mysteries we want to always just say, oh, that, you know, every time there's a, a prince of darkness, and we're like, oh, that's Satan. You know, Beelzebub, that's Satan. Baal, that's Satan. You know, um, you know, whatever. You just name all these deities. That's all Satan, right? Apollo, that's Satan. Uh, you know, Zeus, that's Satan. It's like, well, what if there's, you know, there's probably multiple um, deities at play here. And in the, in the obviously, the, the Book of the Watchers and Enoch tells us that, you know, like, Hasatana isn't even really involved in that whole episode, pretty much. What you described on page 10 and 11 was to me like, bam, boom, right there. You, um, the evidence you shared, you started talking about Tohu and describing this and the evidence there with, I believe, let me see if I have it. Um, you're quoting from, what was it? The infancy gospel of Thomas and, um, Ezra about, um, that it happened. That this, um, what you what you're saying here, this previous age, that the there was something before, what we um, tend to interpret scripture, and this ties right in at what you share at the end, pointing right back to, okay, an event happened. Here's where it is in scripture, which tells us that backs it up, 
and then going back where you put it at the end um it was like the age of angels <laughs> maybe or yeah. many ways it is because he was in charge yeah i mean that's that's obviously my my conclusion that there was an age of um age of angels uh, you know the seraphim upon the earth the cherubim you know uh, different groups, classifications, and I, I often wonder about that. With if you, for those of you who have been been in this for several years, one of the big questions that has been poised is: Are dinosaurs hoaxes? You know, did dinosaurs ever exist? Um, and looking at all their fossils and some of that stuff, and I I can't believe that I've actually gone down this path. But I'm really starting to speculate that that there's something to those geological columns. And, you know, a, a young earth creationist, they're going to look at everything and they're going to say, oh, it's the flood. You know, geological columns, it's the flood. The Grand Canyon, the flood. You know, if I were to point out um, all the, like, the electrical uh, scarring and the fire and stuff, oh, the flood, the flood did that. You know, if I point out the mud flood, oh, the flood did that. You know, Noah's flood, it did all of that. It's just an explanation for everything. Everything you see that's destructive on this earth, the Noah's flood did that. If you see mountains that look like giants, oh, Noah's flood did that, you know. Um, and you know what if there's these these uh what if some of these i guess fossils are digging up and i'm not saying they look like what they claim they did but what if those were from the i guess you could call it the age of the seraphim right like you're seeing these giant dragon monster creatures like you know that's kind of what a seraphim is right it's a dragon i i've been over that in some of my past papers I have another, um, get your thoughts on anything you want in there. I have another one to go over. It's a, it's a bit of a shorter paper. And tonight, so does anybody else have any thoughts on this before we yeah. move on? Yes. Yes, yeah. for me. Um, okay, so a few things. First of all, I'm, I'm really happy that we are in agreement about the difference between Satan and the cherub. Um, I refer to the cherub as Lucifer for a lack of a, a better term, uh, but I'm really glad to hear that uh, someone else agrees <laughs> um, that uh, those are two different entities. And um, in fact, Satan in the Bible is basically a concept. You know, it's it can be a thing or it, it can be... Um, a term for an evil human being, or it can be a term for um, a, a, an evil or, or an, a, you know, a, a, um, a divine being, not, not necessarily evil, but, you know, uh, serving a function as an accuser. Um, so uh, that I completely agree with you. Um, I wanted to add a few more thoughts about uh, Genesis. So when, um, when you read the verses in Hebrew, it's very easy, very easy to, con to reach your conclusion without any need for any other book. Nothing. You just read the verses. So the, verse, the first verse says, Bereshit bara Elohim. So Bereshit created Elohim earth and heavens, heavens and earth, I'm sorry. So then you can ask yourself, who is Bereshit? Bereshit created Elohim. Elohim is a, is a name for 
it's a plural name for all the gods. Um, um, it can be used to gods with small g, okay? Uh, so Bereshit created all the gods, heavens, and earth. And then the earth was um, Tohu Vavo, which is basically, it was a huge mess. Okay, we don't know why it was a huge mess, but it was a mess. And then uh, there was water everywhere and, you know, and, and so on. The story goes on. So you can actually ask yourself, who is Bereshit? And Bereshit is the beginning of everything. Um, and um, in um, in Jewish thought, Bereshit represents like the ancient, like you know when uh, the, uh, Daniel uh, calls El Elyon, he refers to him as the ancient of days. That could be Bereshit, okay? So, so when you read it in Hebrew, you can definitely conclude that there was. Who knows what was before, but something caused everything to be a huge mess. And then, um, yeah, starts all over again. I have never, I have never heard Beersheath used in that way before. And that was really fascinating. You never cease to amaze me. <laughs> Thank uh, you. I, I'm always, I'm always nervous because I'm like, Ronit's gonna say something. I know she's, and it, but then you say something, and it's like it blows my mind. It's always awesome. Uh, so, because I never thought of Genesis or the the first, you know, the word there that we have as a description of like calling it. It's not. So you're saying that it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily saying in the beginning. It's saying the beginning. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Like the ancient like the ancient of days. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. And then it doesn't say so it doesn't say um God created. It says created God. But I don't want to say God, I want to say Elohim. And Elohim in the Bible is used for anything that is uh, you know, it could be ben, uh, the sons of Elohim, or it could be small g God, like um, you know, the idols are called Elohim. Right. Um, I'm, I'm in full. Know. I'm in. Yeah. I'm in full agreement there. Right. Yeah. I totally. Yeah, yeah. I see that. Yeah. So you're you're saying that the Elohim were created. Um, yes. That, that it's not Elohim created, but created Elohim. That's exactly. That's what that, it says. It says Bara Elohim created Elohim. Heavens and earth. See, I feel like I need to get you your own channel, and we just need to get you up there and read this stuff because that's amazing. <laughs> I know I'm not the only one having my mind blown right now, so that's really good. Yeah, and and the last thing I wanted to mention is it's kind of, you know how picky I am about words. So Ruach Hakodesh was never ever ever mentioned in the the original Hebrew scri scriptures. I don't like to call it Old Testament because it's not an Old Testament. It's an existing testament. So I call it the Hebrew scripture, okay? So Ruach HaKodesh was never, ever, ever mentioned. 
it, the only thing that was mentioned is Ruach Elohim, the, the spirit of uh, Yah, okay? Um, so Ruach HaKodesh was actually introduced in the New Testament. And uh, in the second, uh, in, in, during the days of the Second Temple, um, the rabbis, you know, the, the sages, they started using that term. So when you say the original Hebrew, are you, call, are you talking about paleo at this time? Uh, that it was never used in paleo Hebrew? Or was no, it... I'm, I'm talking about the Tanakh. The Tanakh, okay, the, that's a... the, the canon, the Hebrew canon. Ruach HaKodesh was not mentioned even once. What is mentioned is Ruach HaElohim. Okay. Okay, so that's... Uh, I'm just kind of stickler for words, you know, and that's, I just want us to be, I'm not saying that it's not the same. I just think it was never mentioned. So I, you know, it, it was mentioned later, but it was definitely not in the five books, which were written really. I mean, they were transcribed. Uh, I mean, Moses wrote them, but he, they were transcribed from what God told him to write, right? So um, that term was not used in the five books and not in the entire um, Hebrew canon. What about um, any other references to his spirits? Yeah, that's what they said. It, it says, Ruach Elohim. Like even in Genesis, it said, and Ruach Elohim hovered. Um, hovered um, over the water. Well, that's that's We're not great. talking like spirit of wisdom yet, of course. But after this, do we talk? Do we talk about any like his spirit of wisdom, his spirit of mercy, his spirit of that we know? In, in, the, in the first five books, which were transcribed directly by Yah, um, the only mention is of Ruach Elohim. That's all great information, Roni. And I think you had mentioned that probably two or three weeks ago. And you're the first person who I've ever heard this from, that there is no mention of the Ruach HaKadosh in the... Uh, what we call the Old Testament. I, I mean, I agree yeah. with you that I don't like to use the word Old and New Testament either, but I think everyone hopefully knows what I'm talking about when I yeah, distinguish yeah. between new and old. And um, I, yeah, I, I would be curious to hear some time from you more on the implications as you see it, the implications of that and what it's, what it actually all means. Uh, I, <laughs> I will point out uh, not to change the subject but the I did see the the meme pop in here it's saying a male and female stegosaurus are about to mate. Uh, now, can you please explain how this could possibly occur? Um, yeah, so uh, <laughs> um, I mean, I could, yeah, that's okay. So I take it that you're uh, Kyle, that you're you're no for dinosaurs. They did not exist. And let me get give you guys a. Uh, a story because I just do believe stegosaurs. Don't throw it out to the hole. Just stegosaurs. We got. We're putting on. <laughs> well, you know, it's it, this is interesting because uh, I do believe that dragons existed historically within our time frame. 
And there are plenty of stories historically about dragons. I, I have wondered what if this is all like what if what if these what if these dino- dragons wasn't in the original either. <laughs> Hebrew. Yeah. Uh, what, what if the, um, well, even, even, uh, outside of scripture, just ancient society everywhere, there's everywhere on every continent and almost every religion known to man, they talk about dragons, right? Like there's these commonalities you see, you, you see, like they all talk about the flood. They talk about the tower of Babel. They talk about the, yes, much of, more than the modern the dinosaur vernacular. Yeah. yeah now I, I want to bring this up because. There was a discovery that happened back in 2018, I think it was. And the story, you could probably still look it up on the internet, but the the story went down like this. In India, and a lot of these discoveries, they always come down to like India for some bizarre reason. Uh, there was a, down in like an old subway system, there was a, a electrician, I think he went down there and he was working down there. They were going to build like this, uh, this, this new center or they were going to tear all this down and build a new complex, but they had to go down and kind of seek some stuff out. And while he was down there, he claimed that he found, oddly enough, a mummified uh, dinosaur. It, it Completely mummified. Telling us if it was mummified, it was actually mummified by a human being. Uh, this wasn't like a, like a, it wasn't like mummified out like in the sands of the desert or anything like that. And he brings it up and it's all on video. They've got a video camera and they're, they're showing it. And what was really interesting about this is that uh, I, I quickly, I quickly, when this, I remember the day it hit the internet, and I was quickly saying, if this is legit, it's going to go away really quickly. Like they're not going to talk about it. Like they'll just, they'll just, they'll just, they'll just slip away. You'll never hear about this again, which is what basically happened. But I remember looking at the video; it was kind of a shaky camera, but you could clearly see it. And uh, there were. What we call paleontologists, they were they were quickly identifying which dinosaur this was, and again, this is the fascinating part that it didn't actually look like it was. It was, um, I guess, what do you call it, like a bipod or whatever. It was it was kind of like a, a type of a velociraptor, but it was smaller, and it, it so it stood on two legs and it had the kind of the two upper um, uh, arms, but it actually looked like a Chinese dragon. Like literally, like it had, uh, it looked like a serpent. It had, it kind of, um, kind of went up and down in waves. And I thought, well, that's interesting because they never depict dinosaurs looking like that. Like literally, like Chinese dragons. Like, like you could, you can imagine, like the serpent that went into the wilderness in Eden. That it was like a, it, it had apparently legs and arms, and it kind of, you know, slithered up and down. And that's so. Anyways, I'm saying that I, yeah, I do. So it's Chinese myth, not more to reality. Yeah, I, I, I just think that it's um I think that these did exist and I think that they're lying to us about the structure, what they look like. Also, yeah, uh Patrick of uh the Millennial Kingdom just put in a uh like a, a gif from the lost world, that the new ones that or Jurassic World. And um the thing the other thing is is they try to make them out to be warm blooded. And I my understanding is that they can't prove either way if they're cold or, or warm. I think they were cold blooded. I think it's ridiculous that they make them out to be warm blooded. It has no connection whatsoever with any of the reptiles we see on the earth today. And I've brought this up before, just in case you guys don't know, I technically live on an alligator preserve. It is an alligator preserve. You go right outside my porch and there are alligators there right now. I could go out there right now, I could see them. And they um alligators are the most lazy 
opportunistic hunters. They 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 say that like when people get it, uh, bitten by an alligator, they will usually always bite you in the foot or the leg. Why is that? Because they're not interested in your head. They're not interested in your your arms or your your torso. They're looking for the weakest. They think you're a school of fish, and so they're waiting for the weakest, um, uh, the you know, to come along at the end. And and also when they bite you, a lot of people don't know this. When an alligator bites you, they release you right away. And uh, we had a woman who died here recently. And uh, it was like the the first in South Carolina history. It happened like two years ago. She was bitten by an. Oh yeah, you just found it. Thank you, Mister Voltage. There it is. Boom. That's what I was just talking about. You could see there that that you could see like it, it's got a whole arched back. It comes up like it. The neck goes down. The back arches up, back down again, and then the tail. And you could actually see how um, they actually will show in picture books that this thing walked on two legs. But you can see there, it looked like it was on all fours, just like a dragon. So, um, anyways, that that kind of for me makes the di- you know that these dinosaurs were legit; they were dragons on the earth, and um, you know that that would be a little creepy um, if that moved around quickly and it maybe ran up, scampered up a tree, and it's on the branch and it's looking down at me like oh, that's a little so creepy. I don't. Th- but my whole point was on the. Let me get this alligator story. The alligator comes up. This lady, she's a tourist. She decides to take the picture of the alligator. So she thinks this is a bright idea to actually wade out into the water. Now, if you walk out into the water to an alligator, the alligator is going to think you're coming to feed it or that you are the food. They're like, oh, thank you for this offering of yourself for my meal. And so the alligator went up and she thought it was cute. came up to her and bam, snapped and then let her go. And she was in shock at this point, but she started laughing. She thought it was really funny that an alligator bit her. And her husband is there screaming at her to get out of the water. She's just standing there laughing. And then that was, they heard a scream and that was it. It took her under it and it never came up. Uh, Point is, is that uh, these dragons, I believe, would not have been as they're depicted in these dinosaur movies where they're just these ferocious hunters coming and, you know, ripping people to shreds and that kind of stuff. Like, they were probably very lazy opportunistic hunters. Um, and I think they probably left people alone far more than, you know, Jurassic world makes out. So um, anyways, thank you for listening to my rant, everybody. Thank you actually it's for finding, thank you for finding that uh, Volta. That was really cool. I haven't seen that picture for a few years, but that was exactly as I remember it. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. No, I want to, I just want to reiterate again that, I, I I understand young earth creationism's argument that, and they might be totally correct that when we look at the geological columns, that um, that could be from the flood. That it you know you you can do this experiment for yourself and you could see how uh, the tide of the water as it washes up and down, up and down, up and down, it's going to create these different layers, and it could lay down these layers pretty quickly. That could be what we're seeing. I haven't even sought out to study, like, for example, you take the the Tyrannosaurus Rex, whatever this thing was that existed at one point. Um, I, is it is it in the Jurassic layer or the Cretaceous? I'm not really sure which. Uh, but, you know, is it always in the same layer? You know, are they lying to us, right? I have no clue of, of knowing whether they're lying or not. But, you know, studying this out and coming to terms with these different resets and knowing that there were former creations before ours... I really have been more open now, and I never thought I would, 
to the idea that these different columns may literally be past creations. I had started out talking about that, how Yahuwah in his nature, uh, he, and Peter tells us with Sodom and Gomorrah, like he wants us to see these destructive events to know that he is judge and that he will, um, you know, he will, he will judge us for our sins and we will be held accountable and we're not going to get away with it. Uh, now, of course, we're evolutionists. They lie to us is, you know, saying that, you know, we're evolving through these different steps. It's stupid. I don't even need to go there. Hopefully you guys know I'm not even coming close to addressing that. Now, Ronit, I, I take it that you are at least in agreement that I don't know where you fall out of agreement. It could be some of these uh, other texts I read from, but are you at least in agreement looking at the Hebrew, just so for clarification, that the earth there was a type of former creation that was destroyed. Is that what you're seeing? Yes. Okay. It's always good to get your endorsement. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Hopefully everyone heard that I was endorsed by Ronit. I have a different paper I could read if you guys are interested. If you guys would like to, uh, just let me know. It's 1035. We're kind of running out of time. Um and okay, I got a yes from Patrick of the of uh, the Millennial Kingdom. More from Isaac. Okay, so this one I'm going to say straight out is going to be a very controversial piece, and I'm actually it's one of those I'm actually nervous about reading. I really am because I never know how people can take this. Uh, I know that I am not immortal and that I'm not you know I. I <laughs> hopefully everyone understands that that i could be toppled easily and that people can start a riot and uh, tar and feather me at any time however starting last summer i started making a concentrated effort for those of you who've been around for the last uh, year and starting to look at a lot of extra biblical texts and try to put them together and say can these books fit can i take uh second Ezra with uh with you know, first and second Enoch and the Testament of Job and Joseph and Asenath or Aseneth. And, you know, you just go down all these lists of different books, the writings of Abraham. And can you put these together and do they fit? And I was amazed at some things I thought would be very complicated. And um, they fit like a glove. Like scripture fits. All these extra biblical books fit way more better than most people give it credit for. And what I generally hear from the canon people, they to throw out in order to throw out all these other books, they say if one thing disagree, if I can find one thing that disagrees, then that's proof that we're going to throw it out. And I'm just like, really? I mean, seriously? Like, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, I think everyone has seen here evidence that these texts have changed through the years, um, that there are some differences, and so on and so forth. Well. This is this is a paper that has to do with resets. I just addressed the Genesis 1, 1 to 1, 2 resets. This addresses another component of the of Noah's flood reset. Some of the things that are not talked about. And honestly, guys, I don't know what to make of this. Okay, I'm presenting something to you where I have taken several different books. And I have put them together. And the only reason I'm presenting this is because I have three or four testimonies that all seem to agree, one of which comes from the Dead Sea Scrolls um, that you will see that actually matches up amazingly with the writings of Abraham. Now, I told myself that I would stop talking about the writings of Abraham. I made I said that a few months back, and I, for the most part, have, uh, because it, it's, a, it's a controversial book. Why? I don't really get it. People get so agitated by that book, and they 
mostly haven't read it. It's a phenomenal book. And as I have pointed out, and I will in the future, there are passages from the writings of Abraham. Uh, the writings of Abraham, um, I'm going to do a presentation very soon, hopefully, on how all these extra biblical books started to be quote unquote discovered right in the early 1800s. Amazingly, I know. Like they all started coming to light. Well, writings of Abraham was one of the first that was discovered, right when Jasher was. Um, Enoch had just come about. And for whatever reason, the writings of Abraham was just shunned by everybody. Nobody wanted to touch that book. Nobody. Like, no scholars wanted to read it. N nobody. Well, interestingly enough, there are passages in the writings of Abraham that only that the only second witnesses were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. There are Dead Sea Scrolls that were found that perfectly give witness to it and nobody else does. And it's like, how in the world does that happen? Unless if the same monkey behind the typewriter is, you know, back in some, you know, in the Intel department, you know, writing all the Dead Sea Scrolls and all these other books. All right. That's the only other possibility that I've come up with. So I'm going to drop this into here. This is called, I'm going to give you a moment to pull. I should have already given you a moment to pull it up. This is called the birth of Noah, man or angel. So as you can see right there, uh, that's 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 the question that I'm asking, and it's not something that I can answer. And it's something that after reading this, maybe um, I'm presenting to you guys, maybe you can problem solve. Maybe you can say, this is where you uh, had oversight, or I've read something over here that explains this. So let's pull it up. The Birth of Noah, Man or Angel, by yours truly, Noel Joshua Hadley. Starting on page three. And I think this is, this should be a short read. It's only, yeah, 14 pages. So it's not as intensive as the last one. Wouldn't you know it? Even Noah may have been born of an immaculate conception. My latest discovery falls in the heels of a recent paper, The Once and Future Jerusalem. Now, if you guys recall, I, um, I think I read that one off probably like last September or October, some time ago. I will ask you give it. Um, I will ask you to give it a read before venturing on. But as a refresher, we gleaned that the city of Elohim had once physically resided upon the earth before the creation of the firmament. This would have been the the last world age that we talked about earlier tonight. But also that the first Meshelzedek, identified as Noah's nephew, was immediately, or I'm sorry, was immaculately conceived. And as you guys have been hopefully noticed that I've I have found in my investigations in these extra biblical books that the idea of a conception, uh, you know, this idea of immaculate, you say immaculate conception is kind of a Catholic uh, doctrine, and hopefully under everyone understands what I'm saying by this that there that there are recorded apparently other times in Scripture way before Messiah that a baby was born. Um, non-sexually or conceived i should say um it doesn't mean that the woman was a virgin but you know maybe she was married but it was still conceived apart from the husband and this appears to be a tradition that happened within the michelzedek priesthood specifically i've never found a case that has happened apart from the michelzedeks i probably should have put a spoiler alert label there but oh well and i know what you're probably already thinking it's okay to shoot the messenger when a credibility gap is involved Admit it. That's what you were thinking, especially since Moshe tells us in Genesis that Lamech begats a son, calling his name Noah. We see that in Genesis chapter 6, verses 28 through 29. 
and that anyone who says otherwise is going up against the book. Fine, I'm not here to argue with that fact. Lemek begat a son and then called his name Noah. That's what it says. But not even Lemek was so certain of his child's origins, according to other sources I've read. That is why, at the very least, I am suggesting supernatural intervention, as there are multiple texts which unashamedly suggest so. Lamech struggled to accept his wife's pregnancy. Where have we read that before? The virgin conception of Miriam, obviously. The implications are difficult to tell, though, which is why I'm simply here to report my findings and let, let you come to your own conclusions. I'm as surprised by this as any of you. Another paper that will be of critical importance here is Sons of Seth or Sons of Elohim, which I also read last summer. It's one of my favorites I've ever uh, uh, written or read. As the rubber is about to meet the road, again, I advise you to give it a read. But if not, I'll quickly sum it up. Spoiler alert. The Sons of Seth are the Sons of Elohim who saw that the daughters of men were fair in Genesis 6. That is not to say an incursion by the watchers in First Enoch failed to happen. It most certainly did. The watchers impregnated the daughters of Cain, and then the sons of Seth procreated with them. They are simply two separate, though somewhat interlocked events on one singular timeline. I've demonstrated that to be so. It's a domino effect. If you fail to understand how two separate parties are being referred to as the sons of Elohim, then everything we are about to read will become confused. The first witness to Lamech's reaction comes to us by way of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The text is often called Tales of the Patriarchs, though it is sometimes referred to as the Genesis Apocryphon, or simply Qumran Cave 1, uh, 1Q20, if you, if you prefer the dry blade of an, archeolo uh, <laughs> an archaeologist's pickaxe. That is to say, the ancients may have given it a title, but we are not told what it is. Within Tales of the Patriarchs, we are introduced to Lamech's wife, Baitnash. A few more reliable, uh, a far more reliable pronunciation is Bat Enosh, but the version I am delivering only calls her Baitnash. The story involves the birth of Noah, and it edited. It, oh, sorry, guys. And it unfolds as follows. I thought in my heart that the conception was the work of the watchers, the pregnancy of the holy ones, and it belonged to the Nephilim. And my heart was upset by this. I, Lemek, turned to my wife, Baitnosh, and said, Swear to me by the Most High, Great Adonai, King of the universe, the sons of heavens, that you will truthfully tell me everything if you will tell me without lies. That's quite the thing for a, for a man to say to his wife when she has just given birth to a baby. Uh, but that's apparently what he told her. Husbands come to suspect their wives of adultery from time to time and vice versa. But when was the last occasion that a man saw his uh, pregnant wife and seemed quite certain that their child was a Nephilim. Exactly. Lemek and Bat-Enosh inhabited Mount Zion, according to other texts we've read, which they referred to at that time as the mountain of worship. Nearly every son of Seth had abandoned their habitation, and the sons of Cain were not permitted to ascend. During Noah's childhood, only he and his father and his grandfather Methuselah remained. We even see that right here in 2 Adam and Eve chapter 22. 
Altogether, not one of our fathers or other children remained on that holy mountain except those three, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. For all the rest went down from the mountain and fell into sin with the children of Cain. Therefore were they forbidden that mountain, and none remained on it but those three men. That's pretty, uh, that's pretty grim. Enoch came and went after his ascension to heaven. But that's just a side note to the fact that only three men remained upon the holy mountain. And even more importantly, nobody else was given permission to ascend unless Lamech was looking to Methuselah or perhaps Jared or Yared before him. Nobody else was able to impregnate her, his wife. He's essentially saying, this cannot possibly be my child in the womb, as I wasn't there for the conception. And now for Bat Enosh's response. Then Baitnosh, or Bat Enosh, my wife spoke harshly, as you would imagine she would, after just going through labor. And she cried and said, Oh, my brother and Adon, remember my pleasure, the time of love, gasping for breath. I will tell you everything truthfully. And then my heart began to ache when Baitnosh realized my mood had changed. Then she withheld her anger and said to me, Oh, my Adon and brother, remember my pleasure. I swear to you by the great Holy One, the King of the heavens, that this seed, pregnancy, and planting of fruit comes from you and not a stranger, watcher, or son of the heaven. Why is your expressing change and your spirit saddened? I speak honestly to you. Bat Enosh quickly reminds her husband that she was that he was indeed there for the child's conception, as he is told to recollect her moment of pleasure when she was gasping, quote unquote, for breath. In fact, twice he is told. Much is missing from the text. Therefore, considering the additional scripture which will soon be provided, a better understanding might be that he is protesting the child who is only moments earlier delivered from the matrix. The child looks very much as an angel might, all shiny and stuff. Uh-oh. Or the many children of the Watchers whom Lemek likely personally witnessed. That's a problem. Actually, according to things I've read since then, uh, perhaps he's uh, actually identifying this child as, uh, uh, I kind of believe Cain came out shiny, but whatever. His, wife, his wife's rebuttal does very little to comfort him, so Lamech pays his father Methuselah a visit, wherein we read the following. Then I, Lamech, went to my father Methuselah and told him everything so that he would know the truth, because he is well-liked, and he is in well with the holy ones, and they share everything with him. That's kind of an exciting thought. The angels had earlier shared everything with Enoch because he was a priest of the ancient order. And that's just what the Meshelzedics do. They share everything, not only with other people, but also with the angels. Again, that's a pretty exciting thought. Afterwards, the book of Yasher tells us that the kings of the earth anointed Methuselah and made him king over the whole earth in the absence of his father. Not surprisingly, they would not hearken to the voice of Methuselah, but rebelled against him, according to Jasher 4.4. Methuselah probably shared everything too. Also, he taught the Torah. Can't imagine that would go over very well. The people probably wanted a god rather than a priest of Elohim, continuing. So this, again, comes from Tales of the Patriarch, column 2. Methuselah went to Enoch to find the truth. 
then dot, 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 he will. So I'm not sure what that all says. And he went to uh, Parvaim, Parvaim, where Enoch lived. He said to Enoch, and keep in mind, uh, Enoch has already ascended by this point. Oh, my father and Adonai, to whom I, I tell you, do not be angry because I came here to you. Fear before you. And as you can see, there's some words missing there. I had originally intended to slip King Solomon's minds into the title of this paper, which would then have you anxiously guessing the timing of its arrival. If you know your stuff, having managed a little research on your own, then you'll know that wait is over. The only other reference I have yet found to Parvaim is in 2 Chronicles. It is there referred to as the region from which Solomon obtained gold for the ornamentation of his temple. This is what it says in Second Chronicles. And he garnished the house with precious stones for beauty, and the gold was gold of Parvayim. Bada being, Enoch was living among the future home of King Solomon's mines. We have just been given a clue as to its location then. Paravim is mentioned as the abode of Enoch in 1Q20, and therefore likely refers to one of two coordinates. It is possibly the mountain of worship, where the sons of Seth had lived for over a millennium, that is, until the days of Yared, when they saw that the daughters of men were fair. The problem, however, is that Methuselah did not travel far beyond the mountain and would have even instructed the kings of the earth from there, much as Enoch before him did. I can only assume, then, that this location, Paravim, is a given name for the mountain of paradise which was an earshot and within eyesight of the mountain of worship, but just out of arm's reach. If so, then Solomon acquired his gold from paradise. Come to think of it, it would only make sense that he would. Just kind of a little thought there. Our only other option is that Enoch returned to earth after having already been snatched away, which would once again squash any understanding of Parvim's location. Enoch's response is not immediately clear in what remains of the Dead Sea Scroll, as the text is rather scrambled. Noah, however, adds to the narrative, and as we can clearly see for ourselves, everything turned out well. So this is what uh, I guess Noah is saying later on. I abstained from injustice, and in the womb of my mother, who conceived me, I searched for truth. When I emerged from my mother's womb, I lived all my days in truth and walked in the path of eternal truth, and the Holy One was with me. On my pathway's truth, sped to warn me off the something dot 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 of the lie which led to darkness. Tales of the Patriarch, column 7. The second witness to Noah's birth can be found in First Enoch. Same story. But you can see why Lamech would have reason to question the identity of his son's father. As Noah's eyes, once opened, were reported to illuminate the entire house like the sun. Yeah, that's pretty intense. So this comes from chapter 105. I think I'll be reading most of the chapter, verses 1 through 12. After a time, my son Methuselah took a woman for his son, Limech. She became pregnant by him. So he says right there, she became pregnant by him and brought forth a child, the flesh of which uh, was as white as snow and red as a rose, the hair of whose head was white like wool and long and whose eyes were beautiful. When he opened them, he illuminated all the house. Like the sun, the whole house abounded with light. And when he was taken from the head of the midwife, Lamech his father became afraid of him. 
and flying away came to his own father, Methuselah. So we've already seen this reported with Tales of the Patriarch. It said, I have begotten a son unlike others. He is not like men, but resembling the offspring of the angels of heaven, is of a different nature, being altogether unlike to us. His eyes are the rays of the sun, his countenance glorious, and he looks not as if he belonged to me, but to the angels. So, interesting. He's still protesting after speaking to his wife and the other one. I am afraid lest something miraculous should take place on earth in his days. And now, my father, let me entreat and request you to go to our uh, uh, progenitor, uh, Enoch, and learn from him the truth, for his residence is with the angels. So that's interesting. We see that Enoch is living with the angels, giving us, telling us where that location of Solomon's gold is. When Methuselah heard the words of his son, he came to me at the extremities of the earth, for he had been informed that I was there, and he cried out. I heard his voice and went to him, saying, Behold, I am here, my son, since you have come to me. He answered and said, On account of a great event have I come to you, and, I, and on account of a sight difficult have I approached you. And now, my father, hear me, for to my son Lemek a child has been born, who resembles not him, and whose nature is not like the nature of man. His color is whiter than snow, he is redder than the rose. The hair of his head is whiter than the white wool. His eyes are like the rays of the sun, and when he opened them, he illuminated the whole house. When also he was taken from the hand of the midwife, his father Lemek feared and fled to me, believing not what belonged to him, but that he resembled the angels of heaven. And behold, I am come to you, that you might point out to me the truth. This, uh, Enoch again, 105, 1 through 12. You, you read it in Enoch. Noah resembled an angel. Like Moshe, Enoch affirms that Lamech's wife became pregnant by him. So we have gotten that out of the way. A complication arises, however, when Noah does not resemble Lamech. More specifically, he doesn't even resemble the nature of a man. I would say that's a reason for concern. Wouldn't you agree? It's almost as though Bat Enosh is repeating the sin of Hava all over again. We are furthermore told that Noah, quote, resembled the angels of heaven, unquote. Seems contradictory then to claim Lemech is the boy's father. Also, since we are attempting to unravel two mysteries at once, did you catch Enoch's whereabouts? Another clue. Rather than telling us uh, Parvaim was the name of his home, Enoch simply describes it as the extremities of the earth, and on the basis that he, Meshelzedek, had been informed that I was there. Still sounds like the Garden of Paradise to me, as the inhabitants of the mountain of worship could gaze into it without entering. And I didn't put in here that he was in the abode of the angels, so that kind of explains it. We covered that fact in my paper, Sons of Seth or Sons of Elohim. It is indeed possible that Enoch spoke to him through the gate. Let's read on and see if we can come up with any more clues. Our third and final witness to Noah's birth comes to us in the writings of Abraham. So here it comes. Amazing how such an obscure early 19th century black market text could conform so perfectly with Enoch in a Dead Sea Scroll. You're almost pressed to consider if it's somehow legitimate. May even maybe even inspired, but I digress. I'll present the full story, chapters four through nine, and then we can reconvene afterwards. So um, yeah, reading uh, four through nine, so a few pages here. But this is all good stuff. 
Noah was the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, who was taken up with his city, that they might minister unto those in the flesh who sought a higher law than was available to them on the earth. Now the birth of Noah was after this manner. While his father Lamech was journeying towards his home from preaching the gospel among the sons of men, most of whom had rejected his testimony, an angel of Yahuwah appeared unto him and saluted him, saying, Hail Lamech, thou favored one of Elohim, for according to the promise of Yahuwah Elohim to thy father Enoch, thou hast been chosen to be father to him through whom the seed of Elohim will be preserved through the great flood, which the Elohim will send upon the earth um, in judgment. That says that Elohim, I should have said the God, so Elohim plural. Um, it appears to be saying more than multiple Elohim will be sending this. For all the sons of men have gone astray through the corruptions of those angels who fell from among Elohim, the Elohim, the gods, and mingled their seed with the daughters of men and begat sons of great strength and mighty wickedness. Yea, these have caused all flesh to corrupt their way before Yahuwah. Wherefore, they, they shall be destroyed. Save thy son who shall be the seed of the angels. So there it is again. The mother of Noah was also the daughter of Methuselah, for Lamech and his wife had the same father but different mothers. And when Noah was born, his body was full of light, which thing caused great consternation to his father and mother and his father's wives and children and all his house. Moreover, the child stood upon his feet when he had come forth from the womb, and his tongue was loosed, and he did sing praises unto Yahuwah, saying, I will praise thee, O Adon. For thou art the source of all power, yea, the wellspring whence it floweth unto the sons of Elohim, and thou art abounding in wisdom and great and mighty counsel unto, this, to, unto thy servants. Nevertheless, though thou art Elohim, who is long-suffering in judgment, the sins of the children of men have come up before thy face, and thy fury hath waxed strong and will be visited with judgments upon the earth. Thy mercies, O Adon, are beyond number. But thou art Elohim that visiteth wrongdoing upon the children of men, who the fullness of their iniquity hath come upon them. Therefore shall the earth be destroyed according to the word of Elohim, which cannot fail. For the waters of the flood shall come upon the earth, and all things shall perish from before thy face, O Adon, or O Adonai. Nevertheless, in thee do we put our trust, for in whatsoever thou doest, O Adon, thou hast ever done justly. Amen. Chapter 6. These things were a source of amazement and concern unto Lamech, who thereupon went unto his father Methuselah, and finding him in the temple, he said, My father, this day my, did my wife the daughter bear a man-child, and it, at his birth the room was full of light, so that we could not look upon him. And when we could look upon him, behold, the child's hair was white, and fire seemed to come from his eyes. And then he stood upon his feet and sang a hymn of praise unto Yahuwah. And lo, he seemed to have the tongue of an angel. I probably should have highlighted there, there the tongue of an angel. Tell me now the meaning of these things, and how can I raise such a son? Hearing these words, Methuselah too was troubled and said, Fear not, my son, for although I know not the meaning of these things, I will go unto my father Enoch, for he is private to the angels, and he will be able to explain all things to us. Whereupon Methuselah traveled to the top of the highest mountain whence he could speak unto his father Enoch. And he said unto him, My father, my daughter, who is the wife of my son Lemek, hath, um, hath this day brought forth a man-child? 
And at his birth, the room was full of light so that they could not look upon him. And when they could look upon him, behold, the child's hair was white and fire seemed to come from his eyes. And then he stood upon his feet and sang a hymn of praise unto Yahuwah. And lo, he seemed to have the tongue of an angel. Thus saith my son Lemek, who is greatly perplexed as to the meaning of these things and how he can raise such a son. Amazing how all these three accounts agree with each other. Hearing this report, Enoch comforted his son, Methuselah, saying, Fear not, my son, nor fret thyself about this matter. For did not a holy angel visit thy son Lemek and tell him that this should be the seed of the angels? And was it not so? For this cause have these things happened. But on the eighth day, when the child is circumcised, he shall be covered and shall appear as other men, except that his hair shall remain white as a token that through him Yahuwah will do a mighty work. This word did Methuselah return to his son Lemech, and he was comforted. And on the eighth day, when the child was circumcised, he was covered, that he became as other men, except that his hair remained white, and they called his name Noah, which by interpretation is comfort. Because Lemech said, Mine heart is comforted to know that my seed shall be preserved through the great flood. The writings of Abraham, chapters 4 through 9. Uh-oh, Noah was the seed of Elohim? And not to be missed, Lamech was only chosen to be the father to Noah. That's what it says in Abraham 4.2. I highlighted the line so that you wouldn't miss it. Contradictions must be heretical. Best to burn every copy of Abraham then. A couple of sentences later in Abraham 4.3, our worst suspicions are reaffirmed. All flesh would be destroyed in the flood, save thy son, who shall be the seed of the angels. Again, highlighted. There are other important lines in there, such as Noah having the tongue of an angel, but you can read those highlighted passages for yourself. This is the part where I could throw Genesis 6-9 your way as, this, as the politically correct approach and claim Noah was simply perfect in his generation. But that's not really what these texts are saying, are they? Surely Noah's father Lemek, Methuselah, Enoch, and Yared were genetically pure. So why not give them the pomp and circumstance. The same can be said of, of my sons of Seth theory, which claims the sons of Elohim would, who beheld the daughters of men was a slightly separate though interconnected event to the incursion of the Watchers. That too would fall flat. In all three provided texts, the birth of Noah is given a parade route. All right, so hopefully you guys understand what I'm saying here. I'll explain it after this paragraph. Opening one's eyes and then lighting up the house isn't normal for anyone, especially not for a singing baby. So. The point here is that in all these texts, we, we see that there's a genetically pure line going from Yared, Enoch, uh, Methuselah, uh, Lemek, down to Noah. So if it's just a pure line, like nobody else, not even Enoch, is given this uh, pomp and circumstance when he's born. But Noah, for some reason, in these texts, and Enoch, and, and so on and so forth, like this, it's this big event, like something very unique about his birth. It's why Lemek's concern that an angel had sex with Bat Enosh seems completely legitimate, keep in mind his concern, given the context. Lemek certainly accused her of the deed, but Bat Enosh quickly reminded him of their moment of passion. And just so we're clear, we are given no account by which Lemek questioned her purity before Noah emerged from the Matrix. The two had intercourse. The only conclusion I can come to is that a divine intervention took place within the womb of Bat Enosh. 
And then we're given this rather odd confession by Noah. This goes back to the tales of Patriarch Column 7. I abstain from injustice, and in the womb of my mother who conceived me, I searched for truth. When I emerged from my mother's womb, I lived all my days in truth and walked in the path of eternal truth, and the Holy One was with me. On my pathways, truth sped to warn me off the, that gets a little jumbled there, that sentence, um, off of the lie which led to darkness. I searched for truth in the womb of my mother. Who else talks like that? Nobody I've ever met. He even says the Holy One was with him. Sounds anointed to me. It's passages like this which potentially even pits us in the territory of pre-existence. The Ruach of such and such person resting upon someone, or in Noah's case, the seed of Elohim and an angel. We read in Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the belly, I knew you. And before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified you, and I ordained you a prophet unto the nations. So that's it. That was a short little paper. Um, I've been sitting on that for months and kind of wanting to read it to you guys. But that's as far as I've gotten. And it's just a, it's a very... Um, the birth of Noah really isn't talked about much, even though we, you know, all hold up Enoch and these kind of books. Curious to get you guys' thoughts. What did you think of this? Maybe you can help uh, problem solve this for me. Another great presentation and sharing. Um, what you laid out and what we talked about before seems um, quite legitimate. It's almost now, show me where this isn't the truth. <laughs> right. So let's give, my, let's give where I'm at with this. I believe Lemek was his father, um, and Bat Enosh was his mother. Um, but there was some, there appears to be some sort of intervention that happened, where he is the seed of his father, the womb of his mother, but something else happened. And I, I appreciate that you guys are, I'm getting reviews here. Excellent, great read. Very, very interesting and fantastic and love this. I appreciate that, guys. Uh, we started with, I think, 41 uh, live viewers on this, and we only sunk down to 39. So <laughs> that's, it could have been worse. Um, uh, I only lost two people through that. But seriously. No, I think, um, oh, sorry. No, please. Um, I, I think it's, uh, I mean, if we look at the verses, it's just the, the biblical verses. It really reminds me of um, Sarah con conceiving Isaac. I definitely think that it was a similar scenario. Isaac was a very special uh, um, a person in the Bible. I, I think he was... Um, at least as righteous as Noah, even more righteous, because Noah had the incident where he got drunk, right? Isaac has no incidents whatsoever. He, he has a clean portfolio in the Bible. Um, and he, his, um, the, the, his conception was also um, a Yah's work. Yeah, now, now, now maybe you can comment on that a little bit more because I have read some, um, uh, I guess, some rabbinical kind of discussions on that, that there seemed to be like something about when Sarah was in her tent 
and the angel kind of appeared in the tent, and, yes, which was very odd behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and it hasn't really been explained well. What What are your thoughts on what happened? And and that's what they thought. They thought that there is an intervention. So I I um I've always felt that um there is a similar similarity between the um the story of um Mary Sarah and now and I'm listening to you talking about Noah that kind of like we have at least three cases that are very special conceptions. They are not conventional. Um, definitely there is a divine interve- intervention here. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that Isaac and Noah are like Yeshua. I'm just saying these are three scenarios that definitely had an intervention. Th- those were not regular intercourse, man and woman, a baby is born. Yeah, I, I think one of the connections that I'm finding here is that, and I said earlier that they're all Meshilzadeks. I believe that Yahushua is a Meshilzadek, right? I mean, it, Hebrews says so. Um, Abraham, I believe, was a Meshilzadek, just as uh, Noah was. And of course, his son Shem obviously was, if you take that route, which I do. And um, and so there's something unique about, and also this idea of ascending to heaven. If you read the book of Elias the prophet, he also, so this is Elijah, uh, or uh, he also identifies himself as a Meshelzedek in that book, and he is sent mm-hmm. to heaven. Yahushua. This is something you plan on writing about. That's just, we, we were asking about this. That is like one of the clearest um, lines, or what would you say, of who's a Meshelzedek. And well, I think Ram in the chat room was asking, um, are you um, next Thursday? Maybe we're looking ahead. What's your next um, reading? Was it something along the lines of Melchizedek? Is, is that why you brought it up? Oh, no. Uh, I think, what am I looking at next week? It depends on what I finish. I'm either going to be um, talking about, going back to my 70 AD paper and talking about the um more about how it was fulfilled like the beast of revelation 13 and taking people taking all of you through the um the this this line of caesars and the flavians yeah we've been reading about that on wednesday night great yeah (laughs) awesome yeah and um also how the the 10 horns were fulfilled in 70 uh uh, 68 to 70 ad i'm actually quite amazed going through revelation and and i i really thought that that it, it was not all fulfilled in 7080, but I'm kind of really thinking it is now. Like I'm looking at this going like, I can't find anything that maybe was not. So, um, but um, anyways, um, yeah. yes. It Romy. makes sense. It comes to a momentous moment, right? We yeah. have this build up in a way really horrific. Um, um, no, just, um, just, uh, I had just one little, Additional comment is I'm dropping this verse from Daniel. It just reminded me when they were describing uh, Noah. 
remember this when I was looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like clean wool. His throne was flames of fire, its wheels burning fire. I don't know, it just brought me when you were reading the description of Noah the baby, it Great. immediately Great jumped time, at dude. me. Uh, yeah, and it's, it, and it's a fascinating tie-in, too, because you were just talking with our last section on the Ancient of Days and Beersheath. Exactly. <laughs> uh, a- Noel, just a quick thought, uh, because you, you actually asked whether um, about the validity of this article uh, with Noah. Actually, to me, it makes more sense now, because you answered another question, which actually is mentioned in the Bible, like... Uh, the concept of Tammuz, which is the son of Nimrod. And I, I, I always wondered, when, where did these satanic uh, churches get this idea of immaculate conception, about the son, uh, you know, that uh, Semiramis got? And I can see that where they actually get these ideas of immaculate conception, because before, until Nimrod, obviously Yeshua wasn't born, so, and we know that it was immaculate conception, but reading these scriptures, then it's very clear that where they, were, they can actually take these ideas from. Yeah. It's just basically a copy-paste, you know. Right, yeah. And that's where I say that, you know, um, I have so many theories, guys, on, on scripture that is lost to us. Um, like like Isaiah the prophet, I think he was quoting way more from the Shelzedek literature than we uh, we will probably ever know until those books are revealed. Like like my theory is when he talks about the the root out of dry ground, the famous passage that he's actually quoting from a older source that probably is pre flood. And I think that they had uh, I think that was just a common prophecy that he's referring back to. I think that these these uh, were very well known to them back then into the ancient world, and um, I don't yeah why they're lost now it's it's a shame but I I, I just think that, that I think you know Enoch probably had way more books way more literature you know Noah apparently wrote a book on on herbs and how to fight demons with you know natural remedies and herbs and stuff like fascinating stuff and it's it's all gone it's all lost. Hey, Noel. Hello, everyone. Hello. I want to ask uh, you something about the, a certain line that stood up to me when uh, in your paper you quoted the, the line that after um, uh, Noah, uh, it will be circumcised, uh, all the light and all the other exceptional feature will disappear only the hair will remain i thought then why if the circumcision was a melchizedek uh, thing uh, to do even from the beginning then why when abraham entered the school of Tem, didn't uh, he why wasn't he circumcised immediately that's an and, excellent. Uh, that happened after. That's an excellent question. Now, I could I could search through the book. Um, it's 
but it's, I can guarantee you it's there in the writings of Abraham. It actually addresses this. I find this so fascinating, and it it is one of the best pieces of evidence, in my opinion. If you can accept this book, The Writings of Abraham, which I, I, I find a lot of um, second witnesses for this book, that the law predated Sinai to the very beginning, and that the Meshelzedeks all knew what it was. And so what happened was is that when, when Abraham went to the school of Shem, um, he was taught by Shem and Noah. Now, this is where it gets really trippy, too. I, I'm, my current uh, belief is that Shem and Noah were already um, ascended to heaven by this point. Uh, that they were long, I guess what you call dead. They were living. They were unique. They didn't go to Sheol. They they were unique. Um, and that that when when Shem became a Meshelzedek, like there was something supernatural about that. But anyways, it says that Shem actually tells Abraham in this book. He says that we taught you all the law, but we were told by Yahuwah to withhold teaching you about circumcision because. He himself wanted to uh, make a covenant with you through this, and so that's why they held it back from him. From him. Oh yeah, now now I remember this line that you mentioned. Yeah, and because I listened to to, to the to the book of uh, to the writings of Abraham. Yeah, and I, I love that, and and you know the thing is, is that all everyone who is saying that the law was invented at Sinai or introduced them for the first time. I disagree with that because when they went to Sinai, that was that was that was their marriage vows. They were they were entering a covenant with the Most High. And anyone who here who has ever been married, or even if you haven't been married, you probably know the the generic wedding vows that you would you know you would you would give. You know, do you promise to love and cherish and honor her to death? Death do you part? You know, forsaking everyone else to you know blah blah. blah. You know, you just go down it right and. And so when they went to the uh, Sinai, it, it was a rehearsal of their wedding vows. They would have already known it, uh, but it's given to us there because it's the ceremony. Um, and one of the best pieces of evidence, another great piece of evidence for that is actually in the Aramaic Targum. And it talks about the reason why the light was on in the house of the Israelites in Egypt when darkness was over the land is so that they could study the law. And you have to ask, well, why were they studying the law if it didn't exist? So, um, anyways, what were you going to say? The law was from the beginning, but now I, I, I'm wondering how Abraham took part to the Passover, to, to the Pesach, to all the other feasts, especially Pesach, if he wasn't circumcised in the school of Shem, uh, and if Shem and Noah was already ascended, we know that uh, no uh, uncircumcised man can enter uh, the new Jerusalem, no? And so right. that makes Abraham a goyim, like, like all of us that we Especially we here in Europe that come to Torah, we are not circumcised from the, our birth. So I ask that because even I, 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 I want to be circumcised. And I'm wondering, I know that it's uh, the, how, it, how I can say it, it's, it's, the, um, it's the vow that, uh, yeah, make it with Abraham, and this shows that comes from 
from the beginning and we have to take it not for salvation but for obedience so i i wonder how work out for worked out for abraham this this matter well okay so abraham went to the, what's called the city of shalom which was uh, you know where we get yerushalayim the name um it was on mount zion and so he he i don't believe he went to New Yerushalayim. Now we we read in I think Second Baruch it talks about how Abraham was shown New Yerushalayim. I'm under the impression that that happens after his circumcision uh, later in life. In fact, if you if you read uh, maybe it's the Apocalypse of Abraham or I'm not sure what it is. It's uh, there's a couple of books out there that talk about um, or. Oh, I'm I'm going to misquote it, but it when he went to New Jerusalem, I think it was towards the end of his life when he was shown it, and uh, I do believe he was shown New, New uh, Jerusalem uh, according to Second Baruch. But uh, the, the in the when he made the sacrifice uh, with all the animal in the midst of the of the animals, it's mentioned in Third Baruch. You you quoted the, the last two times, I think. Um, okay, I kind of missed that. Um, I, I'm not sure what, but yeah, I, I don't know where it says in Second Baruch. I'd have to find it, but I, you know, I don't. I'm quoting from scripture. I don't have in front of me at the moment, but I, I know it says in Second Baruch that that Abraham was shown uh, the city at some point in his life. It doesn't say when. I don't know if that answers your question, but you know, I, I think that I, I don't think he would have been able to go to heaven. Um, and gone to New Jerusalem if he was uncircumcised. I think that would have happened. It would have had to have happened later in life, unless if someone could show me otherwise. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I understood. It makes sense. Yeah, we we cannot enter uh, New Jerusalem if we are not circumcised uh, first with with uh, in this body for us males, and then with our hearts in the final. <laughs> final passage of us to heaven. So um, I guess I'll just go ahead and, and comment on this since you had brought that up uh, about, you know, circumcision and needing to be circumcised. And I, for anyone out there listening, yes, if you're, a, if you want to be in a covenant with the most high out of obedience, that is, you know, you search this out in scripture, but yes, that is the, what we are told to do. And I know that sounds very painful for men uh, if you have not been circumcised at this point. I made that um, I made that mistake with my sons when they were born. I did not circumcise them because I felt that I was being obedient to Yah by not circumcising them by what I was reading in Galatians and other passages. And um, then I came over to Torah and I was like, "Oh no! Like that was a grave mistake." And when they were, um, how old were they? They were five, just turned five. And I went ahead and I circumcised them. And, you know, I had the big talk with them. And I, you know, told them what was happening, that kind of stuff. And it was a, no, I, I don't know about a grown adult man, but it was, it was a, a less painful experience than going to the dentist's office and having a cavity filled. So if you can imagine what it's like to go get a cavity filled and they numb it and you can kind of feel the drill and you're like, ah, you know. But I can tell you that I was there with my sons the whole way, and they were fascinated by everything that was happening, and they helped with the scissors and making the cut, and they didn't feel a thing. It was a completely painless, uh, it, you know, it was not barbaric. It was, 
um, it was a painless ceremony. They did uh, they a ceremony. It was a painless procedure. They didn't feel a thing. And um, yeah, so there's that. I thought I'd throw that out there. It's something about the circumcision because I searched this topic uh, a lot in the last uh, year because I come to the to the desire to do it, but I'm not sure where and uh, who can do it exactly how it was from the beginning because uh, if anyone here is uh, from the virtual house church uh, with Rob, Juan Carlo uh, uh, in the Torah portion where uh, the wife of Moses uh, circumcised the, the Gershon, I think, is their first time uh, when Moses fought with the angel. Um, he mentioned there, there is a, a difference, and Ronit can, can confirm it if I'm wrong, that Brit Mila uh, is different from Brit Teria. So Brit Peria, it began uh, in the era of the Hasmodian dynasty, and they added to the command of the Torah. They cut all the skin, if I'm all too graphic, I'm sorry. They, 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 they do much more than the, the, the commandment uh, required. Because every, every male is different in there. So the yeah. commandment is only the, the part that is covered must be cut out. But they added to the commandment and in the time of Yeshua, it was already altered, even the circumcision. So now I'm like, how can we do it right? How can I do it right? <laughs> so I'm sorry, this is such maybe a uh, graphic discussion for some people. We're all adults here. Uh, but yes, my, so here's my understanding is that uh, by the time of Yehusha, because they were in what we call Greek Hellenization, um, there were there were Yahudim who were deciding to perhaps try to do like procedures to uncircumcise themselves because they wanted to go to the the Greek uh, baths and the the gymnasiums and some of those because you know they they did sports and working out and other stuff naked back then which was you know and that would have been uh, some problems within Torah itself as well and and so they there's you know two types of cut there's what's called the turtle cut and the um and I'm sorry for being graphic if, if this troubles some people um I'm not trying to be crude but there's there's two types of cuts there's the turtle cut and the what's called the um uh, the uh, mutilated cut and they started doing the mutilated cut. They tried to cut off as much skin as possible um, so that that they couldn't uncircumcise themselves. And most people in the world today are given what's called the mutilated cut. Uh, most of us, if we were circumcised as babies, they probably did the mutilated cut. And um, originally, they probably, I guess it's argued whether they would do like a little prick um, and draw a little blood, or if they would just take a little snip off the very, you know, very end, which would create what's called the turtle cut. Um, and so, yeah, anyone, anyone who needs to get circumcised, still, I recommend staying away from the mutilated cut. You don't need to. You don't need to show your your devotion and love by taking off as much as possible. You don't need to do that. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Rob, for your sense of humor. Uh, I do appreciate that in a very. What was the What was the name of that turtle cut? 
the turtle cut versus the uh, mutilated cut. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's pretty self-descriptive, right? A little turtle head poking out versus like all the skin is pretty much removed, right? So, uh, Noel, I got a I got a question. So, if for example a person uh, gets born uh, or, or or is in a, in an environment or family that there are, there are Muslims, and you know that the Muslims they kind of uh, they do the circ circumcision, but what happens to these people that they do the circumcision for a different reason in the beginning of their life, and then later on, for example, they change to Christians? What happened then? And they change, for example, to Torah Christians, etc. Get baptized. That, okay, get baptized. Does the circumcision still well, count? Agree. Well, yeah. It, the thing is, is that like uh, we, we here's the thing. Uh, I was born, okay, I was circumcised when I was born, okay? Um, my parents circumcised me, I don't know why, uh, because they're completely against it. Um, so I don't, I'm very confused as to why they circumcised me. Uh, they, my mom thinks it's barbaric and she thinks it was, it was hor you know, horrible to, to do it to babies. Um, and I want to ask, well, why did you, <laughs> why did you cut mine off then? But uh, it was somehow they, the fashion at the moment. Yeah, it, it was. was. Like... Well, the, you just you just nailed it. That's what it was. It was the fashion at the moment. They weren't doing it for obedience to the Bible. They did it because it's what they, you know, they were under the pressure to do. I guess they they felt like they were supposed to do it. You know, and so I could say the same thing. I wasn't I wasn't uh, circumcised because my parents were trying to bring me into a covenant with the Most High. Um, but you know, uh, get baptized. So just that's all I can say. If you haven't been baptized, everyone get baptized. I'm doing a baptism. Uh, I think this weekend I'm going to baptize. I baptized Andrew last weekend. I'm baptizing an entire family. I think this weekend, and then uh, almost every weekend coming up, I'm like people are like I have people flying out uh, here because they want to be baptized. And if if you haven't been baptized. That's a, that's a requirement, guys. It's a requirement of obedience. You need to get baptized. I, I've done studies on that scripture, and that's the only conclusion I've come to, that it is a requirement uh, to show that, that obedience to the Most High. So uh, with that, I'm going to officially close. Josh, you've been very patient. Thank you for doing these recordings. You can stay as long as you want, Josh, but uh, officially close it for the night, and I will stay on longer and, and uh, just hang out with you guys.